Welcome to All Power to the Developing, a podcast of the Eastside Institute, where social justice, human development, and community building come together. This is where you will meet activists, artists, teachers, scholars, helpers, and healers who are bringing creativity, hope, and possibility to individuals and communities all over the world. Desiree Wanden, Des for short, and today I have a very special guest with me. I have a theater maker, activist, and educator uh, representing SUNY Potsdam. Uh, I'm here with Rivka Eckert today. How are you doing, Rivka? Rivka. Hi, Des. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, yes. How is everything with you? How is everything going up there in uh, Potsdam? Life is slow and rainy on this spring day. We've got some sleet, but the flowers are starting to come up and the geese are back. So spring is on its way. Yes, yes, yes. Spring is on its way. And um, I think this conversation is going to be a great thing that's going to bloom, you know, like a flower. Um, I'm very excited to speak about your work, Rivka. I've been reading and, and watching some of your talks and you do a lot of exciting work. Um, but first, I want to talk a little bit about you. Um, you are a theater maker. What initially got you into theater? Um, what got you into theater initially? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, so I initially began my love affair with theater as an actor. Um, and it came from, I would say, a selfish position of wanting to be the one showing the art, telling the story and um, and getting the applause at the end. And that was like, as I was a, a high school student and just was looking for a community where I felt like I could be celebrated and held up and, um, and find joy. And uh, I would say that faded pretty quickly. <laughs> And um, then I started to get at, like, what are the stories that we're telling? And um, do I really need to be the one who's on stage performing them, telling them? And so my, my second fall in love with theater was as a director. Um, and I really loved supporting other actors on stage and helping them craft the stories that they want to tell. Um, and then I don't, I think I'm on my third, third go around with loving theater, which is as a theater maker. So, uh, really shaping what are the stories that are on stage? What are the stages at all? How do we bring stages out into the community and the community into the stage? Um, and then using the, the tools, the skills, the discipline of theater in social, organizational, civic settings. Mm. For my own curiosity, what distinguishes a theater director from a theater maker? Yeah, so theater directors are a part of an artistic team that create a vision for the story that you're telling. And in more traditional, at least traditional within the Western canon of theater, directors shape 
that vision and say, this is the world of the play. Um, and they work with, you know, scenic designers and lighting designers and dramaturgs to understand the world, the story that you're telling um, and, and keeping it consistent. Mm. And what were you discovering about those stories? You said that you wanted to craft stories. What were you discovering about the storytelling process at that time that, that really sparked your curiosity? Yeah. So um, when I, I would say from my initial experience on stages, um, I didn't feel that the parts that I was cast in reflected my experience, that the um, roles I stepped into felt almost stereotypical or cliched. And I saw that in um, in other actors as they were trying to, to find their connection and establish a relationship with the roles that they were playing. Um, and that has been a fault or a critique of, of playwriting probably since the first plays were written down. Um, but as uh, as we as a field are trying to grapple with like, how do we represent people in ethical ways? How do we give them complexity and nuance so that um, they don't become one story, one stereotype, one trope? Um, it's it's less about I think looking for playwrights to tell stories of communities, but inviting communities to tell their own stories. Mm -hmm. And and moving into your journey of discovering this, what were some of like the next forms of, of work that started manifesting from you, you realizing this? Yeah, well, um, my initial inquiry was thinking about what are the communities that I belong to? And what are the story stories that I've inherited? Who are my ancestors who I'm bringing into a room with me? And what parts of their stories have been misrepresented or misunderstood? Um, you know, I've got like a wall of pictures behind me that are some, some represent some of my um, people. Uh, I'm Jewish, and so I think a lot about like how do we tell Jewish stories on stage that don't just tell the story of the Holocaust. The the experience of being Jewish is much more than just the most one of the most horrific things that have happened to our people in recent memory. Um, and so, starting with my own communities and and trying to find nuance and um, and multiplicity in the narratives that are being unraveled, and then meeting other folks who are who are representing other communities and thinking through how do we ethically engage with each other to, to share larger, more expansive versions of what community are and how those communities relate to one another, um, which brought me, you know, in into dialogue with theater makers all over, representing all different types of community. Mm. And in meeting theater makers from all of these communities and meeting such different people, were there further discoveries made now that you were getting more into a wider, expansive network of people in this, doing this work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
so you know, some of my my earlier exchanges around creating cross-cultural theater or theater that's engaging with people who are representing different community groups. I think about um, an artist in residency project that I worked on when I lived in Arizona. Um, and I was working at a, um, a tumbleweed, which was a center for youth experiencing homelessness. And I was an artist in residence there. Um, and I've never had the experience of being without a home. Um, and I'm interacting with young people. So people who are, you know, five, 10 years younger than I am at that time, um, who are in a survival crisis mode and are coming into the center to get food or to get help with their documentation, like birth certificates or driver's license. Um, and I'm there to engage in artistic practice with them, which was such a humbling and important learning experience for me as a community-based artist, because it, it brought up all these questions of, um, what level of stability do you need in order to prioritize art or to, to spend time with art or theater making? Um, to which I think the answer is as individual as the people are who are engaging with it, but that you don't have to wait, right? <laughs> that this idea that you need a certain level of, um, of survival necessities in order to walk into the door is anathema to what we know about access and equity in arts practices, which is that everyone deserves access to art, to theater, and that there should be no people who are saying, you know, you need to have your ID and before you can write a poem or before you can like share whatever verse is in your head right now. Like that's not it. In fact, like art is critical to survival and it has to be hand in hand with these more institutionalized ways that we are forced to navigate surviving in the world um so i think of that as like the, the lessons that i learned inside how am i navigating these spaces where i am not a part of this community where i'm here once or twice a week and i'm engaging with folks who are um really in vulnerable places with having their survival needs met um, a lot of those I still practice on a university campus where students are in crisis a lot of the time or when I'm out and working in sites of incarceration where folks are in environments where um, they, are, they are still working through, can I create, can I express inside a, 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 a facility that is designed to prevent those things happening? You said that, you know, with this program, kind of give license, give license to people to be creative and, and to feel a part of this, even if they don't have some of the structural things in life that they that society says they need. Um, what is it that you think is is in an individual or, or how society affects an individual that they feel that they, they can't be a part of these things? They feel like, you know, you could wake up and if I want, I could sing a song <laughs> this morning, you know, or I could draw a picture if I want. But what do you feel it is that society does to an individual that I say, no, I can't, I can't draw this picture, or I can't sing, or I can't, I can't make this play, you know, if I wanted to do it. Yeah, who? Um, I would say that all of that is wrapped up in how 
uh, capitalism demands that we use our energy and that if we are not using our energy towards being good producers or good workers inside of a capitalist system, then we're wasting our energy, right? Um, and so that, you know, if we don't have X, Y, Z that deems us as stable and productive adults, then we're not allowed then this like, quote unquote, free time in which to express um, our creative spirit. And so it's subversive. <laughs> um, and, and it works inside of an abolitionist praxis to say, like, actually, my energy, my creative output is is better served being flourishing exactly where I am right now, that I do not need to wait for whatever that horizon is, that right now is the time to sing the song that's in my heart, to write the play that is trying to get out of me, um, and that if I deny that, the horizon will never come. <laughs> I, I think I think about that a lot. I think uh, you know how some of these tools are are almost they're they're free. You know some of these creative tools are free, and I think about how a larger society could benefit from from utilizing these tools, but why we don't? You know, and I'm putting myself in that as a person that feels they're creative and is creative, but sometimes you know I feel like I can't do it. You know, for whatever reason, so. I think it's very interesting um, speaking about that. When you were doing these, when you were working with these youth in Arizona, what was, we know some of the themes, some of the issues they were dealing with. What were some of the stories that came out of, that were created out of that? Yeah. So uh, one of the projects that we worked on was, um, uh, it came out of a youth desire to stop being targeted by the police. So we, I worked with an, a number of the youth in the facility to develop a proposal that would map hot spots in Phoenix where they felt that um, police were specifically seeking them out and targeting them. Um, and then to tell the stories of those places that flipped the narrative around what's actually happening in those spaces where the the, the police are um, over policing, which is a whole term that <laughs> I won't I won't go down that rabbit hole of over policing or the right amount of policing. Um, so we developed this um, year long project uh, that would partner uh, Phoenix police with um, youth. They would take place in a number of creative engagements that were meant to um, open up both sides of this issue to finding humanistic connection, like um, engaging in storytelling projects, uh, like story circles or um, um, like playback, playback theater. You're telling a story and someone is performing it inside the moment. Um, and we took the proposal to the chief of police, had a meeting and sat for about an hour and a half, imagining through how each step of this would be evaluated and assessed and who would be doing what and going over the whole project timeline. And ultimately the chief of police said, this is an amazing project. We don't have the time for it. Our officers are overstretched and, and we can't pull them off of their um, 
their beats so that they could be a part of it. And I think that, you know, that that experience of developing the project with with youth, getting a seat at the table for the, the Phoenix Police Department and having them hear it out and then ultimately name what their obstacle was for participation, which isn't an obstacle that we could address. Um, it, it speaks to like the value of projects, even if they're not done, that you can at least work through what it would take to imagine the possibilities of the project. We did, um, we did end up doing one sharing um, that was a prototype of the project where uh, youth shared stories of these um, points inside the community that they had mapped. And then uh, police came to hear their stories. And we had a, a talk back afterwards where um, the police who were in attendance would, you know, reflected on how they were able to see through the lens of the youth, what those spaces meant to them um, and what safety meant in those spaces for them, which was different from how a lot of the, the police had thought about what safety was. And the art was, was great. The conversation afterwards was amazing. Um, and so I get stuck on, on this question of what happens when the curtain goes down, which I think is one of the most important questions that community-based theater makers can ask is that like, and now what, right? We've, we've invited these new, new stories potentially to the stage. We've asked folks to be vulnerable and authentic. To what end? Like what, what conditions are being changed? Um, and how do you measure what those conditions are, which you have to, you have to be able to do, right? Mm -hmm. How was it for you on an emotional level, being in these communities, um, listening to these stories, you're kind of in the middle, you're, you're dealing with both the law enforcement, you're dealing with the people of the community, and then here you are as an individual, you know, I'm sure that has your own viewpoints, politics, things of that nature, and it's all coming together now. How is, how is that for you emotionally and how do you um, continue to have resilience um, in that? Because I know, you know, I can imagine this is a very uh, complicated dynamic. Yes. Um, and my goodness, that is the question. Like the, the how, do, how do we practice self-care um, in a world that's designed to, to destroy us? Um, and then as, you're, as one is doing work where um, trauma is brought up and brought to the table and not trauma that I've personally experienced, but trauma that I witness um, and that I certainly don't want to be a, a part of continuing to um, endorse. So there's a, there's a limit to self-care um, and a recognition of what self-care actually is, right? Like um, taking time to rest when it's time to rest um, and just nourishing the body. Um, and then also recognizing that advocacy for institutional care and institutional change is part of those self-care practices. So um, I can't engage in community-based theater making work if it's not rooted in how are we changing conditions through this? Um, because providing a vent or a, you know, a release valve for the 
the the trauma that our systems do to people is not the end goal. The end goal is like we have to we have to absolutely transform the way that our institutions treat people. Mm. Yeah, the, the treatment of the people. When we return, we're going to speak a little bit more about the treatment of the people. We're going to explore Rifka's work in Potsdam Upstate with the prisons and the state prisons. And we're going to get a lot deeper. Thank you very much. We'll be back with a quick, quick message. Hi, I'm Melissa Meyer, Associate Director of the Eastside Institute. Welcome to All Power to the Developing. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. In each episode, we introduce you to some amazing performance activists, play revolutionaries, and developmentalists from around the world who talk to us about their creative grassroots efforts to build a better world. If you like what you hear, please follow and share the series. You can find us on Amazon, Spotify, and Podbean. We'd love to hear your comments and ideas. Like everything at the Institute, the growth of all power to the developing depends upon the people who create it and benefit from it. We hope you're one of them. Thanks for your support. And now back to our conversation. And we are back. Back, back, back. All power to the developing. We are back with Rivka Eckert. So, Rivka, you moved around a lot. And um, how did your work take you upstate to the community of uh, Potsdam? Yes. So uh, I've had a lot of experience travel traveling around. Um, I was in the Peace Corps for three years and lived in, in Samoa and in Liberia. Um, and through those experiences learned about how do you navigate new communities um, as an outsider and coming in. Uh, when I when I wrapped up my time in the Peace Corps, I was at Arizona State University in, in Tempe. Um, and I was there um, as a graduate student. And when I graduated, took a job at uh, SUNY Potsdam, and moved here to this place, which is just at the foothills of the Adirondacks and right on the Canadian border, um, an incredibly rural community uh, that is supported by the, the four universities that are here and, and also by the prison system that's here. Um, and so knowing those geographies and learning what it meant for the shifts in this region, a region that was used to be uh, agrarian, so um, upheld by farming practices and and people moving through that's now inside this completely different economy. Um, And coming here as a theater maker um, and someone who is versed in community-based development, it was was, uh, really my experience here over the last six years has been about learning what this community is, their values, um, and how they imagine the future of the North Country. What were your initial, you know, um, takings of the the Potsdam community when you went up there? You said it's a rare rural community. You're coming from the Peace Corps. You're coming from Arizona. I'm sure um, I'm making the assumption it was more of an urban community. And now you're in this more rural environment. 
what were some of the initial things going through your mind um, being over there? Yeah. So, well, the trite answer is that I needed a new wardrobe. Um, <laughs> so moving here from Arizona, we have, we have six months of winter here um, where it can be real brutally cold, like 20 below zero. Um, and that produces uh, a sense of pride, endurance, and um like legacy in the people who live here. I think uh, that's a, a generalization, of course, but from from people who are from this region, um, being tough and and full of pride about where they live is, I think, something that that most of the folks that I've met um, represent. And uh, I'm tough, so I can absolutely step into that. And my first impressions here are just of an, it, it's an incredibly beautiful part of our country. The Adirondack Mountains and, you know, hidden hamlets and lakes and trails where you don't see people for hours. I mean, it's astonishingly beautiful. Um, and and people who are, are generous and rooted in community because you need to know your neighbor if your furnace goes out over the winter. Um, so the, I think that there are there are so many things about living in this community that resonate with me um, as someone who understands the need for belonging and and community and how what community means to to belonging. Before going up there, did you have the intention to be involved in and in work in the prisons and the state prisons, or was this a discovery that you made going up to Potsdam? Uh, I, I had initial interest in working inside the prisons. Um, I'd started going into prisons to do theater work uh, when I lived in Arizona. And so when I knew I was moving up here, I reached out to um, the superintendents of the facilities here with project proposals. Um, and it took, you know, about a year from initial project proposals to, to getting inside and meeting the folks with whom I, I would be practicing theater um so it was it was always my intention yeah the way society um and you spoke a little bit about this in your ted talk the way society sees prisons i mean we have kind of a one glass view of it you're there because you did something wrong and you belong there um now you're going into the prison systems and you said in your ted talk you're seeing another side of a human being that us, the people on the outside, are not privy to and probably never will be privy to. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? Um, you said the upstate population was shrinking, but more prisons have moved in. Um, it's become more of a mainstay of that community. So there's like a lot, it seems to be a lot of, of complexity there with the, the prisons coming in, the need for the community of these prisons being there, but you're going in there now and dealing with these people on a human level. Yeah. Uh, thanks for that. So, uh, as I mentioned, there, there's an economic reliance in this region on prisons. Um, this is also a predominantly white community, like 98% of the population is white, as am I. Um, and so thinking through as a white person in a rural geography, 
what what does it mean to go into a prison when most of the folks who are white who are going inside are correctional officers or guards or are staffing the facilities in some way. Um, and so when you go, when I go inside, um, what I see is a facility that houses predominantly black and brown men. And that is some of the only interactions that I have with folks who are black and brown is inside of facilities, which is completely different from my experience living in Arizona or internationally or in, in larger population centers. Um, so racism and the bastions of racism are also part of what it means to live inside this community. Confederate flags fly, um, as well as political insignia that would lead, uh, that are signifiers of, of what role race plays in our society. Um, so I think as a, as a white woman, I have a, a important place of just witnessing the legacies of white supremacy as they exist inside of the prison industrial complex. And as a theater maker, I think that my uh, one of the, the greatest challenges that I have is how do I use theater to address mass incarceration in our country? Um, and what, what do I do with that? Um, and that's one of the questions that have, gui have guided my career for the last um, almost 10 years is thinking about what what is theater's role? What are some things that you have discovered about mass incarceration? And, and can you educate us on some of the things, discoveries that you've made being able to work inside of these systems? Sure. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I've necessarily discovered them, but I have um, I've certainly experienced these these moments where I uncover my own biases and the ways that um, the really white supremacist capitalist uh, cis heteropatriarchy has influenced my understanding of what the world is and what the world should look like right so you mentioned like who do i expect to find behind bars has been shaped by um media discourse and popular entertainment shows and their representation of who is locked up and how, how who those people how those people would act right um and so, you know, it's not only black and brown people who are in prisons, but there are, everybody is in prison. It's about a disproportionate representation of who's inside our prisons. Um, that, uh, you know, 10% of our population is more, is represented more as 50% of the incarcerated population. Um, so so there's, there's that level of understanding. Um, there's also understandings about uh, that I've come to about how stereotypes um, impact not just uh, those folks who are incarcerated, but anyone who works in a correctional facility. So one of the last projects that I worked on was um, called North Country Bound. I was interviewing retired correctional officers in order to develop a show about the experience of working inside of a correctional facility. And I started this project because um, it makes me feel uncomfortable to identify with correctional officers. And so I knew that I needed to lean into those questions about why that makes me feel uncomfortable. 
Um, so I interviewed nine retired New York State correctional officers um, and through those conversations learned really immediately about the harm that the prison industrial complex does to anyone who crosses through the doors and that the 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 challenges of working inside those roles um, have long lasting impacts on not just the the people who work there, but their families and then the larger community as well. Um, so I would say that th those have been some of the learnings that I've had uh, from being inside. In the process of you leaning in and interviewing these these correctional officers, were there more discoveries that you made about your perception of who they are coming into that system to do their jobs? Yeah. Um, Can you speak with us about some of the like, sure. stuff that so, you discovered so from I, those interviews? Yeah, I would say there's two things. One um, opened up a new way to me of seeing the state. Um, uh, Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, who's a, a, a geographer and also an abolitionist, she writes about um, carceral geographies and how prisons shape the landscape of where um, we live. And I, I've mentioned before about how this region is sustained on the economics of incarceration. And for COs that I talked to, they see New York State as a web of correctional facilities, and they're trying to get um, a bid in a facility that's as close to their home community as they can. And so when um, correctional facilities are in, in danger of being closed, um, they advocate for those facilities to stay open. Um, and so driving around, you see signs up that say things like save our jails, save our prisons, um, because of how, how, how deeply many of the correctional officers who work in those facilities want to keep them close to their backyard. Um, so that perspective of these being our jails and our prisons and our facilities um, as belonging to us in our community is something that uh, I had a hard time wrapping my head around, but was a, a, um, was ultimately, I think, a gift to me because I... Um, when you think about the margins of our of our society, rural geographies are often seen as being at the margins, um, and m more densely populated areas being the hubs. So, if you recenter that perspective and understand carceral geography in that way, um, it's a it's a different perspective of seeing the land and seeing um, how people move and take jobs in relationship to it. From these plays being written out of these interviews that you've done, do you guys produce shows from them? Are they performed for the for the the prison population? Are they performed for a community in a theater space? What usually comes of these pieces that you create? Yeah, so the the project that I was just talking about, North Country Bound, we uh, as a result of COVID, we were in rehearsals for it right when. Um, all of the strictures around the pandemic shifted and we made those pivots into virtual space. So we uh, ended up doing that performance as a virtual performance um, that, uh, that, that people could, could stream and watch live. Um, 
And then the other project, main project that I've worked with on folks is called Plays Across the Walls. Um, and that uh, performance exchange, those are um, short plays that are written by community participants, either folks who are incarcerated or um, folks who are engaging in those playwriting processes through our library or on our college campus. And those plays are then performed by uh, college students. And those performances take place in, in really three or four different areas. We, we'll stream them virtually. Um, we'll, they'll take place on our college campus. We'll bring them back to the facility that the playwrights uh, were writing from. And then we'll do them in a, a civic space too, like a, a library. Um, so really trying to bring that work back out through around the walls. And what has been the response from, from some of the plays that you've, you've done? From the community. Um, so the plays that have been produced for Plays Across the Walls, this, uh, we've had five years of running this festival. So a, a really wide variety of different types of shows um, and people writing from all over the the country and the world. Like when the pandemic happened, we opened it up to a much wider audience. So um the reception and the, and the shift there has been really exciting to watch that community support and 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 help each other um, heal through just this this really trying time of the pandemic, and then also just a trying time of being um, a human alive on a planet that's in peril. Um, we did a study the second year the place across the walls um was staged and asked audiences to reflect on the stories that they were hearing and um some of that was thinking through like what does it do to your expectations if you know you're seeing a show that was written by someone who is incarcerated um and for for people who had that framing it um allowed them to see that uh that there are multiple ways that, that, that I guess to be reductive about it, that um, being inside of a prison is only one part of a person's experience. And they can they have a wealth of stories that uh, they experience and have access to. So you cannot tell from watching a show if the love story is by the person who is in prison or if the story um, about, you know, terror and uh, fear is by the person who is incarcerated because we all experience the whole range. Yeah. And oftentimes um, projects that, that center experiences of people who are incarcerated ask them, unfortunately, to focus on just that one limited experience of what is incarceration and what does it do. Um, so that, so it, it's exciting to know that, uh, that when people can write about whatever they want to write about, <laughs> they they write about things that anyone can connect to, and 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 that is what what brings us closer together. One thing you you said in um, one of your talks is how the people that are touched by the prison. We we often think of just the inmates um, and then their quote unquote opposition to correctional officers but we don't think of the educators, we don't think of the nurses, we don't think of the other people. And you, you said that in your talk, all the people touched by the system. How do you how do you feel the system 
on an overall level really does touch these people once they step into the wall. And maybe if you could bring yourself into that, once that day that you first stepped in, what, what did it do to you? Yeah. Um, one of the, uh, so in order to volunteer inside of a correctional facility, you go through um, a pretty extensive training process by the state um, to prepare you for what it means to be inside that environment. And the first time that I went through that training experience, um, one of the superintendents said that the uh, prison, the prison will make you hard. And if you don't want to be disillusioned, don't spend a lot of time in a prison. <laughs> and to have a superintendent frame that to me as a volunteer who had never set foot in a prison before, um, I thought about the just like honesty of what it means to then like make an entire career, 20 to 25 years inside of a facility where you know every time I go in here, I am performing and I am like uh, creating a callus between myself and the people who I am guarding um, or surveilling. And what that does to you is that it, it lingers in your body. It lingers in your psyche. We know we can't actually compartmentalize experiences um, that they, they travel with us. And so, you know, uh, correctional officers have some of the highest rates of suicide and alcoholism of any state workers. Um, and they also, what's complicated in understanding that is that they are also um, violence workers. They are doing violence to the people who are incarcerated, um, some, some structurally and some personally. Um, so there's that challenge as well. Um, and then personally, I think about, uh, so I'm, I am inside of my office, um, which is at uh, SUNY Potsdam, and the desk that I have my computer resting on was built by folks in a correctional facility. Um, the State University of New York has contracts with correctional facilities to build dorm beds, to supply hand sanitizer. Um, so just by working here for the state, I am implicated in a part of supporting the prison industrial complex. And one of the most challenging things to accept um, is the insipidness of those networks of relationships. And um, if I wanted to change that, it would mean advocating for a change in legislative um, policy. And is that where my energy as a, a creative worker should be going? And if not me, then who? Like all of these questions um, that I think about are part of uh, how do we get out from under these, these, these really painful legacies if we're going to get free together? Because it's not inside of the university system. It's not inside of the correctional facility. Uh, where, where do we practice what it means to learn create and be free where yeah yeah going into maybe like our 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 imagination or, or our perfect world in your work you speak a lot about 
abolishment, abolition work. If if it was up to you, Rivka, if the government gave you the keys to how to operate this system, how do you feel based on your experiences, your work, the studies you've done, how do you feel these systems should be run or could be run in a way that could rehabilitate the individuals, but they could also be come back into society and, 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 and play a greater role maybe for the future? How, do you, how, how would you do that if you could create more and more and have the keys to these prisons and programs? Yeah. Uh, well, the solution for these, um, the solution for like, what do, what do we do about um, the systems that have been put in place by our government and how do we get free? Like, uh, <laughs> the solution can't come from inside of of the house, right? That's uh, Audrey Lord. The master's tools will never dismantle the, the master's house. So we have to think outside of the paradigm of the government. Like, what? So these governmental structures are not going to produce a solution. Um, and I, as a worker inside of a state educational system, I'm not going to produce these solutions because I'm inside of a system that I'm I'm trying to to critique, right? Um, so. Fortunately, as a theater maker, um, I have the opportunity to rehearse for the, the, the revolution that, that we want, right? Augusto Bawal is, is the rehearsal of the revolution. Um, so every time we are working on a community-based theater project or even a traditional play, we are practicing how do we want to be together? how do we create community guidelines that serve what we need as individuals and what we are working towards um, as a collective. And we get to create those own guidelines that, that suit us as a community. So we're practicing inside a micro scale um, who we wanna be and how we wanna show up in that community. And then over time, as we learn to, to work together and we fail to work together, we are accumulating these lessons of um, how do we hold one another accountable when we don't show up. And we know that we can hold one another accountable in ways that are not based inside punishment. Yeah, We know that because we do that. I mean, we do that with our families. When, when my children make mistakes, I'm not going to lock them up. I'm not going to give them to someone else to to guard them because I can't I can't move forward with them. We work on addressing what are the underlying needs that are not being met here and how can we help meet those needs so that we can belong to each other in ways that 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 are right. So there are so many people who would be better suited to hand over those keys to because they wouldn't take those keys and I wouldn't take the keys either. Um, uh, I would just offer that, you know, every time we enter into a relational dynamic, we have the opportunity to redefine what happens when things go wrong. Um, how do we, how do we create the boundaries uh, and, and 
so that we can love each other um, and create together. And knowing that mistakes are going to happen um, and, and giving ourselves the time to address them, not react to them. Because there are all kinds of people who break the law who don't end up in prison. So we're also talking about like who ends up in prison. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it gets very, very complex. Very complex. Thank you for, for ex exploring it with us today. Um, I feel like I can ask you a million more questions, but I would like to, to kind of um, leave us with this question. The name of this podcast is called All Power to the Developing. When we came up with the podcast, we really wanted to give a voice to people that were working to help people develop and people that were developing in all different types of forms all over the world. When you hear a, a quote like, all power to the developing, what does that mean to you? Yeah, all power to the developing means to me that we are constantly empowering, constantly empowering and giving voice to the people most impacted by systems of oppression um, and that we let, let and follow those most impacted by systems, um, let them lead the way. Let them lead the way. Thank you so much, Rifka, for being on All Power to the Developing today. If people would like to learn more about your work or they would like to maybe attend one of these shows or watch one of these streams of one of these shows, how can people stay in contact with you or learn more about your work? They can follow me on my website, uh, which is we can link. Yeah, we'll definitely link the website. Yep. Or reach out to me on the social medias. I'm always happy to connect. Definitely. And uh, I would personally um, advise people to watch Rivka's TED Talk. I thought the TED Talk was amazing. I think one thing about prisons, once again, it's the way society is, is, is shown prisons. It is stay away from there. Do not go there. Um, you may have someone who's in there, you visit them, but other than that, stay away from that place. And today's exploration of the humanity of, of, of prisons and going deeper into the people and your work going in there, I, I, I tremendously commend you. And like you said, for the people that the system touches, the nurses, the educators, the correctional officers, this work is amazing. So thank you once again for being a part of this podcast. And we are all power to developing. We are available on all major platforms. If you would also like to write to us and let us know that this episode was absolutely amazing and you listened to it and you can't wait for Rifka to go back on, you can write to us at podcast at eastsideinstitute.org. I repeat, that is podcast at eastsideinstitute.org. Let us know what you like about the podcast and we would love to read your response at the end of an episode. Once again, this is All Power to Developing. I am Des, your host, and Rifka, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me.